Welcome to the Boost Health Podcast, where we are searching for wellness balance. Your host is Paul Sandberg, a certified strength and conditioning specialist with nearly 20 years of experience in the health and fitness industry and degrees in human biology and business. At Boost Health, our passion is to learn and share new wellness tactics and help individuals create their own personal health strategy. Join us on this journey of being open-minded and trying new things. You can learn more at MyBoostHealth.com. Welcome to the show. Find your balance. 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 Find your balance. That is our goal here at Boost Health. Welcome to episode number 55 of the Boost Health Podcast. Today's show features a focus on running form with special guest David Jacquier of Joint Dynamics. If you're interested in any aspect of running from going faster to being more efficient to reducing your injuries, this is a show for you. Get your notepads ready because David shares a ton of super helpful information. I can honestly say I think about running completely different after talking with David and he's actually made it fun for me again. We cover gait analysis, shoes, injuries, mobility, strength training, cadence, the thoracic spine, if foot strike is important, common mistakes many runners make, running music, and some easy cues for your head, shoulders, arms, hands, torso, hips, knees, legs, and feet, and a whole lot more. So first, a couple quick announcements, and we'll jump right into the show. Patreon. I just set up a Patreon page for those who want to help support Boost Health. As many of you know, this podcast and videocast is my way to share wellness strategies. I dig deep into the research on any given topic, and occasionally I have guests on the show to share their expertise. The show requires a ton of my time and effort. There's also financial obligations, including bandwidth, equipment, and travel to make the show possible. If you find value in the show and you think it's worthy of your financial contribution, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. If you're interested, I'll link to the Patreon page in the show notes and blog. Extra Boost Guides. The very first Extra Boost Guide is now available and I'm offering a 50% discount. All you have to do is enter SHOW55 at checkout. That's S-H-O-W 55 at checkout. And this guide, it's a full body strength training guide that requires no equipment. And it's 37 pages of descriptions and videos and audio cues to get you through the workout without any issue. It's the same cues that I use with my personal training clients. So I will link to the guide in the show notes and blog, and then you can enter in the code to get 50% off. All right, now here is episode number 55, proper running form, more speed, more efficiency, and less injuries. My guest on episode 55 is David Jacquier. Now, David spent 20 years in investment banking before he moved over into the health field, and he's actually spent the last six years in executive health and high-performance training. He's married with three children, he's part owner of Joint Dynamics, and he's a long-term resident of Hong Kong. He's an avid athlete with a variety of interests, including cricket, Australian rules football, running, and speed water skiing. And 
David is a specialist in executive health solutions and biomechanics and has a passion for problem solving. And when training a client, his philosophy is to get good to better to best. And to do this, it is a case of test, train, and then test. And David is often heard saying, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. If you learn one thing from this show, it is that you shouldn't try to change your run form with a quick little two-minute YouTube video on foot striking. There's some serious science to running properly. I hope you enjoyed this episode and it helps you become a better runner. Well, I have a special guest on the Boost Health podcast with me today is David Jacquier. Did I get that right, David? Okay. I only practice it five or 10 times. <laughs> and David, can you please tell us what your role is here? He works here at Joint Dynamics. Can you please tell us what your role is here and, and how long you've been in this specific role? So far, the Joint Dynamics is a company that was sort of born out of a friendship um, with a physiotherapist who was particularly had great skills in, in Hong Kong. And um, the history that I have is that I was a very good friend and he wanted to go out on his own. And so Joint Dynamics was born of a of a physio frustrated, wanted to put his stamp on the on the Hong Kong scene with regards to his expertise. He tends to think a little bit left of center. And so we started a business about six years ago with just five of us. And so I'm one of the directors, one of the owners, um, with Colin Simmons, who's our clinical director and um, CEO, uh, Andrew Cox, who's one of the local Hong Kong fitness legends. Um, he's, he's quite an exceptional person as well. And so with the three of us and my wife administrating, we... We've built the company over six years now. Uh, we've gone from sort of five to 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 something employees now. Um, it's pretty fluid, but uh, yeah, my role here uh, is multifaceted in the fact that I'll be part business development, I'll be part personal trainer, I do swimming analysis. Um, but what I've found to be a specialization that the we had a, sort of an inkling that might be an undercurrent in, in Hong Kong with the running community is more running analysis and gait analysis. And so my specificity within the group is more to do with optimizing people with regards to projects that they may have. And those projects can be, you know, I want to run a 400K Gobi Ultra Marathon or I want to run a faster 10Ks or or I just don't want to get injured when I go and do some, <laughs> when I do some, uh, some exercise. And so... So yeah, ultimately what I've done is over the period of you know the last few years and prior to starting Joint Dynamics, um, spent a lot of time catching up on education. I was a bit of a, a bit of a sports nerd um, as a kid, but then spent a lot of time in the business environment, um, and then sort of transitioning from business over into uh, this secondary business like Joint Dynamics. Uh, we spent a lot of time traveling to catch up my um, anatomical education, you could say. And so I spent a bit of time down at the, the AAS uh, down in Australia looking to do some running biomechanics and then athletic coaching. Uh, and then I went to spend some time at Queensland Uni doing swimming biomechanics so we could sort of round off that triathlon sort of scene. Um, and then uh, spent a year going backwards and forwards to a place in Michigan called the Gray Institute. Now it's in a tiny place called Adrian, um, which is about 45 minutes out of Detroit. And those guys are pretty much what we consider to be the, you know, probably world leaders in true analysis of biomechanics and cause function and uh, sharing the load and, and effectively making someone a hell of a lot more efficient or trying to rehabilitate them. And so 
yeah, we spend a, you spend a year going backwards and forwards to Michigan and I've got a fellow fellowship of applied functional science from that private institute and the guys there are pretty sharp. So, you know, in, in a real nutshell, that's been probably the last five years of me personally. Um, prior to that, it was sort of amateur sport and a bit of geeky knowledge that sort of dragged me to where I am. So that's, yeah, that's, that's me. Now the business joint dynamics is, it's one of these things, businesses in Hong Kong either succeed quickly or fail quickly. And if they succeed quickly, you're obviously onto something that works. Um, and we've found that, you know, we've unearthed a need of the local high performance or high demanding personnel and fast paced lifestyle that Hong Kong has. We've found a demand for, you know, this style of more analytical fitness people want to outsource their problems to you well they're going to outsource their fitness well if you do a good job well you'll tend to go okay thank you and the reason that uh, i came to see you dave is because i've had this pretty terrible knee pain for the last year and i've tried all the things that i know how to do to to fix it and uh, i finally decided i'm going to go see a professional and so through the dragons which i've talked about on the podcast a few times um, I've heard your name come up a few times. I've heard joint dynamic come up a few times and I was like, okay, I'm going to actually go and find out if there's something upstream. Is there something upstream with my crappy running form that's causing <laughs> this knee pain? The only thing that's more scary than my running form is my swimming form. I don't want you to ever see me swim. You'll, you would have a whole book to write about how bad it is. But, um, you know, my, my previous, I guess you could say background with gait analysis wasn't so great. So I used to work in Southern California as a personal trainer. And I would remember seeing all my clients coming in with the exact same pair of ASICs. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? Why do you guys all have the same shoes? And they were like, oh, well, we did a gait analysis. And they said it has to be this shoe. And of course, it was the top, top, top of the line. Very, very wealthy people. So they were buying the top of the line um, model. And so that was sort of my first view of gait analysis was, let's just say, oh, you're overpronating or you're supinating. And so let's just get you in this shoe. And then I started realizing, okay, well, there's actually more to this science. And I think it's evolved uh, a lot with the technology and with, with the, 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 you know, just the knowledge and the science behind it. So came to see you and I really wanted to share a couple of things uh, that I've seen just in studies that I think are interesting. And we'll talk a little bit more about how poor my stuff was <laughs> and how you're working to fix me. And I'm already seeing some, some good results. So I wanted to share quickly, there's this meta analysis done on the up-to-date website and it noted, and this, you probably see this too, nearly half of the runners, this is in the U S but I have a feeling it's probably global. Half of the runners in the U S get injured at some point and that the knee is the most injured area. This is a huge study. Um, and then 2018 study in the American Journal of Sports and Medicine, they followed 300 male and female runners for over two years. And they actually found that 73% of the women got injured at some point during those two and a half years. And 50, excuse me, 62% of the men were injured during that period. And this is interesting. And then 56% of those that got injured got injured again. <laughs> so um, I wanted to ask you, First, is this consistent with what you see here in your facility? And are you guys seeing more people for injury recovery? Or are you seeing, I know you work with a lot of elite runners. Are you just trying to add speed to it, people? Or is it sort of 50-50? Interesting, those stats. It's um, to think that there's 73% of women and only 62% of men. 
what we've found is that women are quite proactive when it comes to injury treatment and injury management. And so if there's something wrong, they'll put their hand up and say, listen, I think there's something wrong. Can you help me out? Can you give me some feedback on what my style's like? This hurts, you know. And so what I tend to suggest is that that 62% of males is really 85% (laughs) because guys will tend to just go, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. Oh, now I'm completely broken. Fix me. And so there's a there's an alphaism or there's a machoism with guys thinking that you know something's injured and but they'll go no it'll go away or that pain will go away and and it'll happen to the point where uh, a guy will this is a gross generalization but it fits pretty well from what i've seen is that a guy will push himself to the point where he then just can't do anything it's like pushing a boat out you further push it out the longer it takes to come back and so those those guys that do get injured will take twice as long to rehabilitate because they've waited twice as long to tell you about it. And so in that respect, it's, uh, you know, those numbers are 73% being females. Yep, no problem at all. I'd suggest that over a two-year period. It's almost to say that it's unavoidable because if you're a runner or a serious runner, what you'll do is you'll find your threshold and then try and push it. Yes. Well, if you're going to push your threshold, well, injuries will be the path of least resistance and so if you're running faster you've got a greater cardio well it's going to put more stress on your achilles if you've got greater achilles and then you're going to you're going to run harder well you may be putting more pressure through your knees and so if someone's serious about improving their running i doubt very much that anyone will have gone through injury free at all because if you're serious you're pushing your limits and if you're pushing your limits well something will give at some point over a two-year period you know annual mileage i'd suggest you know, if you're a serious runner, you're probably doing, you know, upwards of 35, 40 kilometers a week. And that's conservative. Like a lot of the ultra runners are doing like upwards of 100, 110 kilometers of a week. And so if you think, you know, 110 kilometers a week, how many steps that is, how many, you know, minutes on your feet, it's, it's pretty rare that anyone's going to go through without an injury. So with regards to your injury stats, the fact that 56 were injured more than once is probably pretty accurate. Because most runners will not only get injured, but they'll return to play before they're fully fixed. And so you'll say, you'll have someone whose Achilles is just coming good and they'll get almost better. And they'll then run for the next month and that same Achilles will play out. Well, that's not actually a re-injury, but it'll be classed as a re-injury. Because most runners are so fanatical about their running that they just don't want to stop. And so part of our role here is, you know, getting the right approach to their injury. We manage people through injuries because they want to run in races. And so you're never going to have someone that's perfect. It's, you know, one in 10 people will be perfect going into a race. You know, five of them will be carrying some sort of niggle. You know, the other four will be suboptimal because they're just recovering from an injury. Or And so when it comes to working out how to manage things there's a real play between making someone perfect and you know helping them get the result that they want and there's so there is a compromise there and it's and it's a very imperfect compromise but if managed correctly you're not going to permanently maim or scar someone they'll just have something that they'll have a result that you have to manage the expectation of that result you know yes you're going to run instead of running 435s you might run 445s because you don't have the same power that you've got but yeah, you'll manage people through through some injuries, through their races. Um, on your point about do we make people faster or do we make people more robust or do we fix people, um, it's pretty rare that people will have 
the foresight and the appetite to be preemptive with regards to their fitness and their strength. Mm-hmm. You'll tend to think that someone will like something, they'll take up running, they'll go for a run, and then something will be sore, and they'll go, oh, this is sore, will it go away? I don't know if it's natural, if it's not. If it's not, if someone's intelligent about this, they'll ask a question pretty early on. If they're not, they'll think it's just a normal part of wear and tear of you know starting the running journey, in which case you're in a bit of trouble because you'll find that injuries will be, you know, knee injuries are obviously a big thing, but you'll find that injuries will be tendon injuries and a tendon will take a period of time to get injured and takes a period of time to fix. Muscles will tear and repair quite quickly, a strain will tear or repair quite quickly, but, you know, tendons are things that really, you know, patella tendons in particular, these sorts of things, they, they take a long time to repair depending upon how long it's taken to damage. And so... It's a case of, yeah, most of the time you'll find people will only come to us after it's hurting a bit because prior to that, they're feeling like they're going quite well. And if they're going quite well, well, then they increase their intensity, whether that's duration or speed or or power or one of the variables of intensity or, or load. Um, they'll just increasing it until they do eventually get injured or do eventually feel that niggle and then they'll come. And because up until that point, they they know what they're doing, you know. And so, they, and so, yeah, so it's in that respect, it's good. Now, you've touched on a really good one in the fact that most injuries are knees. Well, the one thing that the guys at the Gray Institute, and I've got to give them all the, all the glamour for this one, is they very quickly debunked the idea that your knee's the problem. Your knee's basically where problems are, you know, present. Normally, the knee is a problem of an of a incorrect alignment, a bad ankle or an incorrect foot you know, mobility or a lack of hip strength. In that case, you, they used to say your knee is just a dumb joint between your ankle and your hip. And so, if, yeah, it's just taking the load. You know, you're inefficient somewhere or another or you're, or you're loading not linearly over that joint. And so that's where it presents rather than that's what the problem is. So someone goes, oh, can you fix my knee? And we'll tend to look at someone's ankle mobility first up. Okay, how's your ankle mobility? Oh, the problem's my knee. Yeah, I know. Give us a look at your ankle. Oh, okay. Now, give us a look at your hip strength. My problem's my knee. Yeah, I know. Give us a look at this. And so, and then once you go through that, then then that gait analysis component comes into it and saying, okay, um, and we'll touch on this probably a little bit later, but are you are you symmetrically bad or are you you know asymmetrically bad? If you're symmetrically bad, well then we're happy. Yeah. <laughs> but if but if you're asymmetrically bad, well then there's problems. Right. So yeah, that'd probably touch on a lot of your injuries and and definitely that the knee component of it. Now yeah, as I said, the knee is where it presents, not and the knee is where you will get damage, but it's not the cause of the concern, or it's more more than likely not the cause of the concern. Uh, and that's something that we are very confident here. Unless you've had an impact injury, in which case, you know, if you've had a knee taken out playing football or you've, t- you've had some sort of aggressive change of direction, as in maybe a tennis player changing direction, you know, in a more medial fashion, moving laterally, and you're putting strain on medial ligaments or, a, or you've jumped and landed incorrectly, in which case you've got ACL sort of issues, but generally, running's a repetitive injury, and so it's it's a death by a thousand cuts. You know, it's not going to feel bad until you've done it enough times. And you know, if you're taking, you know, a good runner's going to have a cadence of one seventy to one eighty, 
you know, a minute, if you're doing that for an hour or two hours, five times a week, well, it's tens of thousands of mistakes that you're possibly making. <laughs> and then that'll add up. So, yeah, so that's probably where I'd go with regards to access to the knee. I guess my personal frustration is, and, and I'll quickly note on this, um, you know, sports med doc back in the U.S. named Dr. Jordan Metzel, he was interviewed on Runner's World. And I know you guys believe in this too. He said that repeat injuries are a huge problem for runners. And you touched on that. And the biggest cause of running injuries is not doing enough strength work. That's, that's his thought. And so that's where, that's my first love is strength training. And I'm, I've always been pretty good about a balanced program, three dimensional functional strength training. So I feel like I'm the guy that shouldn't get hurt. (laughs) Um, but as you saw with my mobility screening with the, with the gray screening, um, I had some imbalances and those could have potentially been what's causing my, my issue. But that was one of the things that I was almost most impressed with all of the technology and everything that you suggested for me was fantastic. But before we did anything else, this is what I do with my, my personal training clients is you, we took off my shoes and we saw what can my body do in three-dimensional space before we even tried to make me go do something athletic. I love that because before I'm going to go have somebody go perform an overhead press, I need to know if they have, you know, rotator cuff issues. It's the exact same thing. So I thought that was fantastic. But can you specifically just touch on why this type of mobility screening is important for running? I think we've alluded to it, but I know you have some more scientific facts on, on why. Yeah, definitely. Now, um, this particular type of screenings is really quite impressive because it's to the to the layman they're going to look at someone doing a series of lunges and a series of motions across a series of planes and then say, well, what does that give me? Does it give me a score? Am I thirty two out of thirty two, or am I you know twenty five out of thirty two? That twenty five out of thirty two, what does that mean? Like screens around the world, everyone wants a number. Where am I with regards to my norms? Now, we've done a bit of work with uh, almost a hybrid of the Cirque du Soleil over in the, in the House of Dancing Water, and they run a show over in Macau that's pretty impressive. And you're dealing with some people that are just phenomenally athletic, like incredibly impressive. And what a similar screen would be for them would be, you know, you've got someone that can bend themselves in a pretzel, but yet they've said they've got a stiff back, you know. And so you're saying, well, okay, ultimately you would have been a 37 out of 32, like you're phenomenally, you're off the charts with regards to this particular type of numeric screen or value-based screening and saying that, well, what feedback can I give you based off a number? Well, ultimately not a lot. So what you're looking for is is effectively how do you how do you move in a symmetrical fashion? Do both your hips extend the same distance? Do Does your overhead reach allow you to get thoracic extension these sorts of things and so and vice versa um do you rotate through both hips the same you know distance if you if you're symmetrical you'll tend to go quite well now what tends to happen is you look at the ankles first because the first thing that touches the ground is is your foot and so your your heel your calcaneus will you know go in one direction and your midfoot will go in the other direction that's like that pronation and then as you toe off your heel flicks back in one direction and your forefoot flicks in the other and so your foot and your midfoot has a counter rotational element to it and so if you've got calcaneal eversion and you know and midfoot pronation rotation and your foot spreads you want your foot to spread you don't want something sitting under your arch that blocks your foot from spreading 
because if you the second you block that foot from spreading or you take um, your big toe or your first ray out of action and then if you've taken your big toe out of action well that's a big part of your propulsion and it's a huge part of your balance and so if I block you from pronating well I'm reducing your amount of balance and if I'm reducing that you know 75 80 times 85 times a minute well that that spreading and that shock absorption that your heel and your foot spread then takes then has to go somewhere else and so rather than pronate and use your muscles to support yourself or you've blocked the muscles in the in your foot and you've you stabilize it then go okay well, what am i going to use next and so the first joint's going to be the knee um and that's saying okay well unless i land perfectly all the time my knee's going to take an inefficient load and so we we're really big on feet you're really big on ankle mobility uh, much as you have clients who you would look at their ankles when they look to do a back squat, for instance, say, yes. if they've got no ankle mobility, they're going to really struggle with their back squats. You see the guys who are, you know, your crossfitters and your Olympic lifters, well, there's a really good reason they wear these shoes with enormous blocks in their heels. It's to allow them that greater degree of, you know, vertical strength yes. because they can cheat a lack of ankle mobility. Yes. Whereas with a, with a runner, I'm looking for maximum ankle mobility so that they can keep their foot on the ground for longer behind them, which provides them with an economy of movement that works really, really well. So to break it down, to look at the screen, you're saying, okay, first, the second you lunge, well, I can see what your back foot's doing and your front foot's doing. It shows me whether you've got ankle mobility and, and, and sort of calf mobility and, and a deal of elasticity through your lower limb from that we go straight past your knee because if you're lunging it's either bending or it's extending and so it's going pretty much straight until we get you twisting and then you go to the hips now if you've got everyone will have a dominant hip because when they go to kick a soccer ball they'll use one leg to stand on and the other leg to kick well the leg you're looking to stand on your posting leg um, will tend to be stronger and stiffer in which case You'll, you, it's a generalization, but we tend to find quite often that that hip doesn't extend as far. Um, it's a stronger, stiffer hip, whereas your kicking leg or your other leg will tend to be more fluid and have a greater range. And so, if you've got, if you've got one hip that extends and the other hip that doesn't, well, the, you know, you're going to get a torque through your spine. Um, you get, you'll build up an inefficient tension through your running gait, and so, all of that just over time works its way somewhere else means that you might swing your arm a bit harder one way to compensate for a lack of hip extension. It, like the amount of things that can go wrong are phenomenal. But if you can break it down to just some simple forwards and backwards movements for any glaring immobilities or any glaring asymmetries, um, you, can, you can nail a few down. You'll be different from side to side all the time, but what you're looking to do is you're looking to make your asymmetries not enormous, just little or just reduce them. No one's going to be perfect and you're never going to aim to get someone perfect because it'll just never happen. Um, but if you can reduce their asymmetries to the point where you can progressively overload any part of their training to a point where they won't injure themselves, you've won. So can I make you similar enough that I can increase your load without risk of injury? And then you allow that person to take control over their own load a little bit. Um, and then from that point onwards, you're not going to have a you know, a unilateral uh, stress. You can have bilateral stress. You know, the best part about it is goes, someone goes for a really long run and goes, oh, I'm really tired. My legs are really sore. I said, are both of them sore? They go, yes. 
that's okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, both of you, they go, oh, my calves pulled up really tight. I said, both of them? And they'll go, nah, my right calf pulled up really tight. And you go, okay, well, you're either overusing it, you're compensating, it's not as strong as the other one, your ankle doesn't flex to give you the sort of range that you need, or there's something that, you know, is repeating here. And so you go, okay, well, is it always sore? Yeah, it's always my right. And you go, well, then I can't increase your load because you're just going to get more injured. And so what the screen does is it takes you from the bottom to the top. You're looking at your ankles and you're looking at the, your hips. And then you're looking at the things that don't have bilateral sides to it, like the spine. So you're sitting there going, am I getting extension through my spine? Can I get thoracic extension, like the, the mid part of your spine behind your rib cage? Can I get that to, to bend in a sensible way? so that I can create sort of like a C-shape through my spine and get my hands above my head, and it means that my shoulders can then move quite freely, whereas desk jockeys and people at desks these days are quite kyphotic. They've always, everyone's, everyone's got a right-handed mouse, and so you'll find that most people have got a, a pronation in their right shoulder. Um, they'll all have, you know, uh, they'll use their traps more, and, and so you're just going, can I correct that so that you can sort of be a lot more even? Um, strengthening a runner's back makes them run faster and so, and it's something that they'll never do ever because they hate it um, but yeah then again touching on your point of strength that's what we do like I don't sit there and say I'm going to you have to run 25k's this week I need you to do 20 you know 400 hill repeats or I need you to do three times you know 400 track repeats and all this sort of stuff I've got a team of guys that I refer to that provide that sort of detailed specificity what I try to do is I try to make someone robust enough that they don't break down. And that way they will definitely improve because they'll increase their load. And so it's it's about that simple. We make people more robust by making them more symmetrical. And then we put through them through enough strength training to feel confident that not only their muscles can take the new force and load, but their connective tissue strength can do what it needs to do to not get injured. And so you'd know when you've got someone that you might be doing some rehab work on, uh, if you've got like Achilles tendons or patellar tendons, it's, it's counterintuitive that what you need to do is you need to put that particular tendon, when you're rehabbing it, under increasing strength, uh, stress. What you're trying to do is you're trying to put that Achilles under even more stress in a controlled isometric fashion to get that tendon to have greatest blood supply so that it can repair. So it's a real counterintuitive sort of thing that someone goes oh this hurts a lot my patella tendon in my knee hurts a lot okay well what we're going to do is we're going to sit up against the wall and not move until you feel like that's burning and it's and it's everyone goes oh really this is just terrible i'd rather be out running correct you know achilles the same can i do you know eccentric you know heel you know drops until it burns and only after you do that repeatedly you know x amount of times do you repair? And so our job is to make sure that hopefully that doesn't happen in the first place. We're putting people under enough stress that their, you know, one, two, one, two, one, two steps isn't going to cause that injury. So we're huge advocates around strength and um, strength and mobility. All right. So all of my endurance buddies that don't do strength training, it's not just me barking about it all the time. You heard it from the man himself. So, okay. So let's talk about that. So you've got high, high, especially runners. I know you've got some elite runners that come through here. What I like to promote, just not just about sport, just for general wellness, general strength and conditioning, three days of strength training, full body, 
functional movements a week. Is that realistic for an athlete of the caliber that you see come through here? What, what do you guys usually recommend for, the, for those folks? It's hard to talk a runner away from just wanting to run. Um, uh, when, when we've, got, we've got quite a spectrum of different athletes that run through the place. We've got um, chronic condition. Um, you're talking anorexics and morbidly obese and you know, people with significant health problems that you, you're trying to provide a safe and comfortable environment that they feel like they can just get moving again. And so part of, our, part of the facility is chronic treatment of particular injuries. We also do a hell of a lot of rehab, like post-ACL sort of stuff. And so in that respect, it's very controlled and we, we're babying people to it. We just want to give someone the confidence that they can be active again. We, we transfer through sort of the middle ground, which is sort of the bulge of the curve effectively, probably, you know, at least one to two standard deviations of our entire client base would be the guys who are either second-time athletes, like they were athletes between the ages of sort of 16 to 22, then they had to go off and have a career and et cetera, et cetera. You know, they've, had, they've got a career in a place that they like it. They've got two kids. They're getting a bit fatter. They're trying to go, listen, I've got the resources to outsource my health and fitness to you, and we get them back into shape. Okay, okay what do you want to achieve? We set them some goals and get, get that done. Um, it's, they're time poor. And so they're trying to work out a way that they can optimize everything that they do. And so they're not going to think of doing exercise themselves. They're going to get someone else to do that for them. And so they come in and we'll periodize a program. Ideally, we see them three times a week because that's three times out of what, how many, what, 160 something hours, 164 hours of a, of a week that we've got control over these people, yeah. you know. So it's, it's 2% of their life that we're controlling. Um, ideally we try and give them like nutritional guidance and consultation and we we try our best to crack the whip without making them resent us Um, and that you know that some people take it quite well other people don't take it quite well but at the same time if you're managing someone's expectations around the result that they're looking to get well you have to do it right they're paying you to do this you know you're seen as an expert you live and die by the success of some of your clients and so um, and in saying that the trainer's very proud of what they're producing. Like, you know, I live vicariously through a lot of my runners because there's no way I'll run as fast as these guys. You know, one of, in particular, one of the, one of the runners that we, we started looking after quite some time ago ran a 33 flat for 10Ks the other day, just absolutely torched it. And that was in 33 degree humid, heat and humidity. So, you know, this guy's got some real jets, but um, and originally we nicknamed him the mule because his gait was so terrible. His arms were running all over the place. He was terrible. But this guy's now got a VO2 of 88, runs like the wind. I didn't know that was possible. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Um, but yeah, so every once in a while you unearth just a gem and um, and you see this gem turn around and take shape and polish up and you just go, that's fantastic. So it is pretty interesting getting some of these people through and you, you take people on certain journeys. Some people it's life-changing, but you know, the consistency is the key. You'd, find, you'd see it as well through your clients. Compliance is one of the biggest problems that you're going to find. And so you need to find the simplest way for them to comply to simple things because it's too easy to not. Um, so compliance is one of the things. Um, Hong Kong's a dynamic place and so everyone will find a reason not to do what you're doing and or I'm time poor or whatever, but you know, you're there to get a result and so you have to get a result. Strength training mobility as you mentioned like your your predisposition to full you know 360 mobility without doubt the key how do you break that down how do you 
functional fitness, everyone's, oh, functional fitness this and, you know, people will call CrossFit functional fitness or, you know, strongman functional fitness or, you know, certain types of um, animal flow functional fitness or gymnastics, fun- you know, it's it sort of gets labelled, functional fitness gets labelled everything, okay, can, can I can I function, yes, are you fit, yes, but what, as you mentioned, what you tend to do is you go, can you control the end of your ranges, right? So if I bend down and then stand up again, you don't get injured bending down. You get injured on the change of direction. So can I control the end of my ranges in all of the things that I want to do in my life? And so, you know, I had a great athlete the other day bend down and twinged his back, you know, unpacking the dishwasher, right? You know, he was put in a he was put in a twisting motion that he didn't have control of the end of his range. Like, mate, he can run like the wind, but he can't turn around and twist sideways unpacking a dishwasher. Um, so we'll tend to try and find the most dynamic and safe way of moving someone in three dimensions so that they feel like they've got control getting into that motion and getting out. The, the, the change of direction is the key. And then if you've got that sort of control, we can do pretty much anything. All right. So you put me through the mobility screening. This is what you do with, with everybody with your, with your program that's going through the gait analysis. Uh, and you filmed me, which is not unusual when you're doing a, a gait analysis. In your program, you look at strike, load, toe-off and swing phase, and upper body. And you had an idea of how tight I was in my thoracic spine, especially after my mobility screening. Um, and you found more than three issues with me, but you you honed in on three, which I appreciated. It made me feel better. And I want you to talk about why just just three in just a second as well, but... The three things that you suggested for me, this might help other people, which is why I'm sharing it. Uh, you said my cadence was uh, super slow. I needed to speed that up and lean forward a little bit more. So you gave me a short-term goal of 165 to 170 on my cadence. Now you clocked me at 156 and I went back and I looked at my old runs and I was between 158 and 162 average. So I think you were spot on there. Um, so I did a couple of the things you suggested and then I hit 174 on my first run out, which was great, but I shared with you, I was uh, sore in my quads for a few days afterwards. So it was, but both quads, both quads, um, you wanted me to, to push my arms forward more. Cause I was, I was, for those of you watching the video, I was swinging my arms across in front of my body, which is terribly inefficient, which makes sense. So pushing my arms forward, the direction I wanted to go, not wasting a whole bunch of energy swinging across my body. And then you noticed a little bit of inequality in my toe off. So I was pushing off more with my left, interestingly enough, which is the side I was also hurt on. Um, and could be one of the reasons why, who knows? And so I was trying to just mentally drive more with my right side. So quicker cadence, forward lean, um, pushing my arms forward and driving off of that right side. And and that was enough for me to, to think about it once. And it was kind of hard to do all three, three things at once, but I think I was pretty successful. So with, and you gave me a long-term goal of 180 on my cadence. Is this something that you suggest for everybody or is this dependent upon what the athlete is trying to do, their build, that type of stuff? Can you talk to that? Certainly. Um, now, a lot of it depends. It, you really struggle to get a really tall guy to do 180 plus. You know, they've got big, long levers. Uh, it's a pretty rapid strike. The key to the key to cadence is there's no set rule. But ideally, if I'm looking to provide the least amount of stress on my joints, I want to share it as much as I can. And so if I take two great big bounds, 
um, what will tend to happen is I'll end up striking the ground out in front of myself, in which case I'm then decelerating and sticking a force through my knee. Uh, and so with an increased cadence, you'll tend to find that people strike underneath their body a little more. And so then it provides far less force and deceleration of all things when you run. And so if I can imagine running 100 meters, you do it in, say, 120 steps. Well, that's 100 meters covered in 120 steps. That's however many newtons per meter. If I can cover those 100 meters in 140 steps, well, the individual impact is obviously reduced somewhat. And so I'm then providing a marginal less force over the same distance with the same downward force of your body. Like as an endurance runner, you want to decrease the amount of force that you're putting through each individual stride. If you if you overstride or you have such a, a if you have a slow cadence, it'll tend to find that obviously you're getting up in the air higher, and then you're landing harder and then you're doing it less often. And so the same distance will be higher, harder, less often, and you'll be decelerating. Yeah. So can I slowly chip away at someone's cadence and say, okay, in, in a controlled fashion and, and not saying, like you're a normal size athlete. Um, if you were you know, three inches, four inches taller, well, I'd think that 180 would probably tap you out. You'd be 175 to 178, something like that. That would be optimal. Um, now optimal is like it's all about an economy of movement now that would be a pretty handy economy for you I'd imagine um, we find guys like uh, your Kipchogis these guys they're back up in the like the 190s 195s we've had we've had uh, a particular runner here in Hong Kong who's like quite well-known Italian bloke and he's at 205 um, they're road runners the road runners will tend to have a much higher cadence and they're just like bang 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 they're falling forward and not falling over and so that tends to have them running very, very quickly. Uh, they'll have st strong hamstrings. They'll tend their hit their heels will clip their butt in the way through. And so from a technical perspective, you say, can I work on this technically? Can I increase my steps? And when you're running, it's just like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's really quite metronomic in the fact that you can go three steps a second, 180 steps a minute, you're done, right? And so... I'll even go as far as to, you know, sending people um, clips and music that'll be 175 beats a minute. Yeah. You just turn around, I just want to run it, you know. You'll get, you'll get on Spotify and they'll go, okay, this run is a 175 beats a minute playlist. And so you'll just go bang, 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 people will turn around and, and jog to the beat. And then it makes it very easy. It's something that you then don't have to think about. And so that's it, you know. Um, the fact that, yeah, one, testing someone on a treadmill is quite difficult because they will tend to overstride. So their cadence will be unnaturally slow on a treadmill because your feet are being taken out from underneath you ultimately. So you do have to test someone with a bit of incline to it and also have to adjust to the fact that you're putting your foot down and effectively it's being taken out from underneath you a little bit. You still get a quite a good look at how someone runs. Um, and I can't chase after you with a GoPro down at your feet down the local path. And so it's impossible to do it in that respect. Um, so there's a little bit of an adjustment, but at the same time, you get a pretty good look at it. So the fact that you went back and looked at your data and you were 158 to 160 was pretty sensible. It sort of married up quite well. Now, the arms forward thing, um, looking at your, looking at your, uh, yeah, looking, looking at how you're, you rotated 
effectively. You're a strong guy with a pretty decent upper body. And so what you've got is a lot of power that you're effectively washing off rather than sending forward. Now, we're looking to get vectoral motion forward. Um, some people, you'll say, listen, can you stiffen up you know, your, your core rotation? Um, you, it's a case of you've probably got you know, a disproportionate amount of upper body power that you're effectively not using correctly. And so if you could get your thumbs to flick your hips and then drive forward rather than effectively cross your body with a forward motion, you, you're going to do you know, a hell of a lot better. What you'll find if, if runners back muscles and if they can have their hands going in the right direction, your your left arm counter rotate like counteracts your right knee's force um just like sprinters have an enormous upper body because they have to have a strong right arm to effectively counterbalance their strong left leg drive so to keep them uh, central and to keep them moving in a straight line so saying how can i get all my vectors going in the one direction how can I get my knee drive and my hand going in the one direction? How do I get it? And so you can't have this huge difference in upper body rotation and lower body counter rotation. So with you in particular, because you're quite strong upper body, if you could get that to go forward rather than across yourself, well, then you're picking up free stride length, you know? And so if you could pick up, just say you picked up one inch of free stride length, that's two and a half minutes in a marathon that you're getting for free. Right, and that's not much. You're talking one inch of stride length, you know. And so imagine you picked up one and a half. Well, that's a four minutes off your marathon time, right? You give that to someone who's a decent runner and you say, okay, get a stronger back and you'll run faster. They go, oh, and then you go, okay, well, watch this. And you'll you'll get them to test a half marathon time. You'll make their back stronger and then they go, I'll run, you know, 45 seconds faster off my half marathon. I'll run a minute. And and they would you know it's weeks apart under similar conditions and so eventually they'll come to the fact that you just need to make someone economical you don't need to make someone particularly phenomenally powerful well you know obviously kipchoge these guys aren't phenomenally powerful they're just super economical um so how can i make the the art of running as impact free as possible um and how economical can I make a particular person? How can I get their vectors going in the right direction? So the arms forward's definitely key because you're picking up something for free. Like I don't want you to have more cardio. I just want your arms to swing a different way. So that was really good. Now the toe off and what people tend to misunderstand sometimes with propulsion is your quadriceps when running are generally decelerators. And so when your foot hits the ground, your quadriceps decelerate that motion. So your quadriceps don't actually extend your knee. What extends your leg when you look to get propulsion is ultimately your glutes want to fire to extend your hip, send your hip into extension, and you want to push off your toe. And so, yeah, your quads are going to be used as to take on that impact to set yourself up, but to get true speed, you're going to be pushing hard through your calf and you're, and you're going to drive your hip hard forward. And so in that respect, yeah, your quads will work well to help, but your real speed is toe off, how hard your hamstrings can pull in that circular motion and how much your glutes can drive your hips forward. Like when you squeeze your glutes, it'll tend to send your hip into extension. Yes. Well, that's, that's running. Hip mm. extension is running, toe off is running. And then how can I get that leg around in front of me fast again while I get my hamstring to work? And so most running is posterior chain, calf, hamstring, glutes, whereas your quads are decelerators when you impact the ground. 
And so everyone that's sitting there doing just phenomenal amounts of quad work and squats and all this sort of stuff without doing their hamstrings, glutes and calves will end up being incredibly quad dominant running and it's like you're running while sitting in a chair. Yeah, and so you don't get hip extension, you don't get toe off. And if you Google triple extension of anything, you know, they use it for overhead snatching. People talk about overhead snatching, triple extension. Same can be said for running. You see, you know, the Adidas and the Nike and the New Balance posters and you always see that perfect stance with someone pushing through their toe, their knee straight, their hip straight. You know, that person's done it once for a photo. But at the same time, if you can get somewhere near that, somewhere near that, it stops you running like you're looking down at the ground and you're sitting on a chair whilst you're shuffling forward. So um, so when it comes to toe-off, and in particular with regards to your left, as mentioned, your left is quite a strong hip. You've done, you know, you use that hip for propulsion. What we were looking for was your right glute and your right hip um, and your right toe-off to be just more powerful. And so you didn't end up being dominant and coming back with a gallop. You didn't want like this left-to-hit push land heavy on your right left to hip push and so you're using your left to get most of your forward momentum your right landed and allowed your left to come around to give you that propulsion again your right landed carried you through and then you're looking to get propulsion off that left again and if you're going to get that left as you push off your left you're going to have to swing your right around to counterbalance that left propulsion and hence it gave you that counter rotation problem so so yeah it's like there were bits and pieces but when you broke it down i'm going Okay, get some good tunes so you can go one, two, three, one, two, three. Uh, you're looking at going sit tall and the thoracic extension was one of the key things to get your arms to move down past your hips because if you can't get your spine out the way, you can't get your shoulders to go back and your arms aren't going to come past your hips and so you've got to get your spine to move so that your shoulders can move back and so that's, that's just an economy of motion. That's not a fitness. That's not anything else but just going, okay, this is just pure economy and vectoral force. And then can I work on the strength component of what I'm after? I'm going to drive through this right hip a little bit more. And so from that, you know, you've come in, you've run faster, your cadence is higher, and there's a chance that from now on your cardiovascular will be challenged where it probably wasn't before. And so ideally that's perfect. If, if, if your limitation to your training is cardiovascular fitness, we'll run more. You know, <laughs> and so a lot of you find a lot of marathoners. They go, "Well, how do you get better at running? Well, you run more." And I don't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to dispute that. Not for one second. Fantastic analogy of a marathon runner that I that we I spoke of a few years ago. We had a very famous Australian marathon running coach come up to Hong Kong, and he said it's like a for those people who know what a phone book is. Um, it's they're very thin pages, easy to tear one by one, but it's a very thick book. And so obviously if you put enough of these pages together, it's a book that's pretty solid. And so if you're looking to class your longer distance running or your running goals is just like a phone book. Each page might be a little thin. You might not think it's fantastic, but what you're doing is you're creating a pretty solid phone book. And in time, that'll be pretty hard to tear. Oh, I like that analogy. So we're talking a lot about thoracic as pro- you know, probably just because I struggle with, with that. I've been working a lot on trying to mobilize it and, and strengthen it. Do you have any go-to mobility moves or strengthening moves for the thoracic spine that you can share with us? Yeah, without a doubt. Um, you A lot of the time, you're trying to find a way of uh, getting that, that mid-spine mobility. What tends to happen is your chin tends to become a very good driving force and so if you if your chin pushes up and you're looking at the sky or looking at anywhere above you 
you'll find that the rest of your body follows and so your chest will drive up and so you'll use your you'll use your chin as a driving force what you want to do is use fixed points of contact so what you might do is you might stick your hands and your elbows up against the wall like such and then all you're wanting to do is isolate a movement when you're when you're mobilizing your thoracic you're trying to stop everything else moving but your thoracic. So you'll fix the points of contact of your arms and your elbows and you'll fix the point of contact of everything else so that you know that a particular motion isn't getting lost in an elbow flex or extension, that the movement's not getting lost in in some sort of weird rotation. You go, the only motion that I'm getting and that thoracic spine is very rigid and so you're not looking for a phenomenal amount of mobility, you're just looking for some. Um, but if you think like just like people grab their foot and try and stretch their quadricep, well, some of that quadricep stretch might get lost in a back extension or it might get lost somewhere else. If you can make your levers as fixed and as short as possible for any type of mobility, you know you're going to get it pretty much right. If your levers are very long, there's a good chance that that stretch disappears in, an, in a wrist flexion or an elbow extension or a shoulder rotation. Whereas if I can fix my elbows and my wrist and everything, the only thing that's moving is going to be your spine. Your, sh your shoulder blades will wrap around your spine and you'll get it to move backwards and forwards over time. It, you'll tend to be quite sore. If you get it right, you tend to be quite sore for a couple of days because you're trying to move something that hasn't moved in a while or something that doesn't like moving. Like the mid-spine facets that you look at, well, the, the lumbar spine's meant to move in rotation, flexion, extension. Um, same with the cervical spine. Like, you know, you've got to move your neck from side to side, around and around you. Whereas your thoracic spine is supposed to be something that you, you know, your ribcage is attached to and so you're protecting your vital functions. And so it's not meant to flex a lot, it's not meant to extend a lot, it's not meant to rotate at all. And so you'll find that the design of your spinal facets, you know, intelligently enough with the human body, doesn't really move that much. But if you can get your spine to move not just at the bottom of your spine to, to the mid-spine, as you get closer towards your rib cage, if you can have a more even curve through your spine where you don't have a particular axis of rotation where you'll find it jams and these sorts of things, um, that smooth action will end up sending your hips into extension. So as you drive your chest forward, your hips will extend. It just happens. To get your chest to drive forward, can you lift your chin up? Yeah, well, if I lift my chin up, my chest goes forward and instantly I've got hip extension. And so you to turn around and say, okay, look upwards and ahead when you're running if the road's flat because you don't have to worry about it because the road's flat. But yeah, if you can get your chin to be a driver when you're doing any sort of upper body spinal movements, you'll, you'll tend to find that that's a relatively simple and easy foolproof way of getting the type of mobility that you need. And so that's, you know, golfers are really hard with this. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a golfer trying to, because they're hunched over all the time, but the second they go into a backswing, well, they've got this, their spine has to extend or their shoulder blade doesn't wrap around and they don't get a swing in. You know, if a golfer tries to swing and they've got no spine extension, they've got a really short back lift and they're trying to muscle everything through. And that's how they get golfer's elbow because they're trying to muscle something through when they should be sharing the load through their body. A runner will have problems when they're, they're not sharing the load through their entire body, when their foot's not collapsing correct, when their knee's not landing straight, when their hip's not taking the load, when their hips aren't extending, when you don't have a thoracic spine extending, all this sort of stuff. It's not about being phenomenally strong, phenomenally quick. It's about being unbelievably economical. 
That's a really good point. And admittedly, you know, I have just been trying to do things that are awesome mobilizers of the spine and you can do a Google search and find a whole bunch of different possibilities to do that. But I think that that's a good point. If you look at the anatomy and what it's there for, it's not supposed to be this super supple piece of your spine. It, it should be mobile, but only, only slightly. And so with that drill with your arms on the wall, I think that's actually a really good one that most people should be able to do without maybe trying to throw them right into a back bridge or something. That's excellent. I wanted to talk a little bit about cueing because um, you've obviously got some really good cues and just some basic tips to help runners too. So if you could just give us, if we started from the head and worked our way down, if that makes sense to you, David, just give a, a couple of cues in each position. Like I think based on what you said there, our heads probably should be looking forward versus down. So just head and shoulders, arms looking down the body and sort of from a runner's perspective, what we should be doing with which each of those parts. Yeah, no problems. The the cue that I give most people when, like, if even if you're a, like a pretty handy runner, before each run, if you can stand with both your feet still, and then all you do is you fall forward and don't fall on your face. And so what'll happen is instinctively you'll put your feet out underneath you. Now this sounds so phenomenally simplistic. But what that does is create what they call a fall angle. And you'll see sprinters have an aggressive fall angle at the start of a sprint because they're trying to get it. They've got a phenomenal amount of power. And as they get through the, you know, the first 30 meters of a, of a sprint, they'll gradually stand up and run taller. And so, so to, that's the best way to describe a fall angle, you know, how far your shoulders are past your point of impact. And so if your shoulders are five degrees or just past your point of impact, well, you're going to be running incredibly fast, okay? And it came down to if you're overstriding, well, your point of impact is going to be in front of your head, in which case you're actually decelerating. And so the, the key cue that I would give nearly every runner, um, when you're starting a run, stand still with both your feet dead next to each other and then just lean forward and don't fall down. And then your feet will just land underneath you. What will happen is you'll tend to run quite fast and you'll tend to fire up your Achilles and your calf quite quickly. So you'll fall into the normal pattern that you actually run in naturally and have done from the ages of you know zero to however old you are. Um, and so now some people go, oh, fall angle, I've got this fall angle thing. And what they'll do is they'll end up flexing at the hip to create a fall angle. So that what they'll do is they'll just lean over from the hip, which gives them back problems, hamstring problems, and whatever else. And so if you were to envisage someone, you know, pulling, uh, putting a rope around your hips and pulling it forward, that creates a nice, lovely little lean. And you, it means that you'll stand very tall. You'll you, you run very proud-chested. Um, and your hands will get back past your hips. And it makes it beautiful. It looks fantastic. Um, for most people, that's very unnatural. And so it takes a little bit of getting used to. But the more you do it, the more you map it into your system, the better it'll be. And so starting from the head up, you're sitting there going, okay, where's my line of vision? There's nothing worse than looking about two feet in front of you because obviously your posture is pretty crap and, you, and you, you're leaning too far forward and everything's looking down. You've got no forward momentum. If you can look, say, 20, 30 meters in front of you, that's going to give you a visual a pretty decent, uh, pretty decent sort of trajectory, if you'd say. Then from the shoulders down, interestingly, you look at someone's jaw. If you've got a loose jaw and a floppy bottom lip, it means you're pretty relaxed. 
you'll find you'll see people running the, the other way they've got pursed lips and they're blowing hard through their mouth they're hating their run right they're really hating it they're blowing hard and so every time you think i'm doing this hard just relax your jaw you find sprinters do it their lips are all over the place they're faces wobbly they're super chilled out they're in the zone but they're sprinting right you're thinking that should be really hard but they know that the more relaxed their head is the more economic they'll be they, you know there's no tension in their body they're not wasting any energy they're just relaxed everything's working how it should so looking up a, a relaxed jaw like you've got a real floppy jaw going on um if you're if you've got a bit of thoracic extension like if your chest is out the front and your and your hands are nice and relaxed it means that you, your neck's not carrying your shoulders too high so you go okay can i just if my thumbs are brushing my hips i'm not carrying my hands really high and crossing my body a lot um definitely don't run with a drink bottle because you end up with a really shocking shoulder injury on one side and you'll end up with a terrible hamstring on the other because you're carrying a weight effectively making you non-symmetrical Right, so if you're carrying, just say you're carrying two or three hundred grams in one arm, like you're carrying two hundred gram, two hundred mils of bottled water in one arm. Well, th what's that making you do? You have to push. You either tuck that arm in and don't let it swing, in which case your opposite hamstring has to work really hard to get the job done, um, or you're putting a lot of stress through that shoulder, and that extra grams in one hand is giving you greater forward momentum off one swing and not off the other. And so you become incredibly, you know, biased towards tucking a hand in like it's a wing, um, and using your other arm, and then it means that your your counter rotation's all up the all up the creek. Never drink, never never run with a drink bottle unless you've got two, and then it's like, well, you're not going to do that. Oh, phones are the worst, you know, running with a phone, oh, yeah. and your, and your headphones on, um, get an MP3 player, clip it to the back of your hat, do whatever. Yeah. Um, and so that's taking care of your eyes, your jaws loose. Um, if you're flicking your thumbs by your hips, your shoulders are relaxed. And so that's your upper body taken care of because if your arms are coming through straight, you're not counter-rotating, you're not having this big crossover. Um, going through your hips, as I said, if you, if you can imagine someone's pulling a string from your hips and pulling it forward, you're right, it's rain. And then you're just thinking, how do I keep my feet on the ground behind me as long as I can? And so you don't want to feel like you're picking your foot up early and swinging your leg from the hip. You're going, how can I get extension behind me? Just like that Adidas Nike New Balance you know, poster. How do I push off later? How do I get my foot off the ground as late as I possibly can? Because that means your foot is a mile behind you. And then your, your foot will come up and flick your bum and, and you'll have that beautiful circular gait motion. If you can think, keep my foot on the ground longer behind myself, instantly you'll lean forward. So you're thinking, okay, I'm going to keep my foot on the ground longer and that'll take care of everything else. Like your calves will work harder, your hips will extend further, your butt's going to squeeze harder to get that foot to stay back there. And then everything, momentum will just carry you forward. And so from that, you're saying that they would be, that's a ton of cues and probably far too many to think about it. But all you're going to do is, you know, look up, flick your hips and keep your toe on the ground. Um, that'll be pretty much it. You know, you'll find it when you're, your form starts to get tired, your labor's dry and everything will hurt. You go, stand up, you know, let your, let your bones take care of your load rather than your muscles take care of your load. If you were listening carefully, you didn't hear David say anything about you must land on your forefoot or you try to get rid of heel striking. And I think this, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is something that's changed maybe as we've learned more about the, the science of running. Um, because I think you can start from the ground up which probably doesn't sound like the right thing to do and go, okay, I must start striking in my midfoot. And then 
you're forcing that and then, and you're not thinking about all these other things where it sounds like if you talk through it, like you just did, maybe not all those cues, because like you said, it's a lot, but if you're working on those two or three things, you said your foot's naturally going to go into the position that it should. Right. Yeah. You're not going to find anyone that weighs 110 kilos full foot striking. You know, uh, they'll have plantar fascia problems and their Achilles will blow up in a nanosecond, right? If, yeah, someone over 110 kilos can do that for about 50 meters, right? Um, obviously, there's an optimal striking pattern when it comes to actually running. And it's, and it's obviously not aggressive heel striking because if you're aggressively heel striking, it means that your foot's way out in front of your body. And so all you'd think about is land under yourself because it means you're not decelerating. If that means a mild heel strike, so be it. If midfoot strike, whatever, forefoot strike. If you've got a really light body and a stiffness of step, well, then that's fantastic, and you'll run very, very fast. But all you're looking to do is strike underneath your body, so that your hips can help take some of the load of that downward force. As you get better at this, and as you want to get faster, and if you're wanting to run shorter distances at higher speeds, well, then that striking pattern may differ, and you might want to go, okay. Um, imagine I'm a like a basketballer or a netballer or like someone that wants to change direction quickly. Well, obviously, you know, landing on your heels not going to be the, the fastest way to get things done. But landing on your toes isn't either. You're going to find that you're going to find that that forefoot strike will get you changing directions, and you'll be able to change your your momentum over that strike. But at the same time, we're running in a straight line. I don't have to change directions, and so if I can be economical as possible, all I need to do is land underneath myself fall forward and don't fall over and so we never ever tell someone you've got to change the way that you run the further the more you land underneath yourself it's impossible to heel strike if you land if you land if your feet land behind your center of gravity you're running on your toes almost like it's so marginal you're talking about a five degree fall angle creates the difference between eight kilometers an hour and 15 kilometers an hour so all you need to do is land underneath yourself and you're running really fast like you're bloody quick so yeah don't don't recreate someone because the second that you do you you most of the people as i've mentioned are 35 45 well they've got 35 years of doing something one way and their body's adapted to that they've got tensile strength through achilles and ligaments and you know they've had shoes that are a certain heel to foot elevation heel to forefoot now people talk about the fall of a shoe and it's the difference between the height of your heel and the height of your forefoot you know people talk about barefoot running and all this sort of stuff well if if you're going to change shoes just do it gradually um you can't turn around and go from a 12 mil heel over four foot elevation and go to a flat foot shoe because just that 12 mils means that your achilles has to stretch that little bit further on every single step that you take because you eventually your heel will touch the ground which means that your achilles is getting longer by maybe 12 mils which is phenomenally large and if you do that with force associated with it you're going to have an achilles problem real quick you're going to plan a fascia problem so if you i'm all up for changing shoes you know run in whatever brand you like run in whatever you like but change it around but you're not going to go okay i've only run in 12 mil drops for ages i'm going to go to four mil drops because you'll get injured real quick um barefoot running well it's a case of going that's something that you would incrementally introduce over a very long period of time and you're going to be sore and it's going to be miserable and so just don't do anything quickly yeah, th that's good advice. Uh, you know, if you read um, Kelly Sturette's book, 
uh, ready to run. He talks about how, uh, similar to what you're saying, it's, it's not about the shoe. It was never about the shoe. You, you, you need to let the foot act like a foot, but you can't do that overnight. They talk about the same thing. If you're going into a zero drop shoe, uh, you need to do it very slowly. So if you're, you know, typically running 5k, maybe just that first K is in the zero drop shoe and then you finish in your, in your normal shoe. I think that's really good advice. Now, as a coach, if you're trying to get the foot to act like a foot, like Dr. Sturette says, and we're trying to strengthen up the musculature of the lower leg and the foot, would you ideally like to have somebody move towards that? Do you talk about shoes with your folks or do you just let them run in whatever they're comfortable in? Um, I've got to be careful here because I've got some strong opinions about certain types of brands of shoes and um, what their functionality is. Um, some shoes will be ultra cushioning, in which case that's, that's great. People like running them. They feel good. Ultimately, I love someone to ha- have the ability to propel off their big toe. If you, can, if you can propel off your big toe or if you can have that big toe connection with you, each and every step that you have, well, you're recruiting all of your accelerators. Um, like there's your calves are obviously your gastrox and these sorts of things and your slats and your Achilles are all very good. They're big muscles and they certainly help, but you've got your perineus um, longest and these sorts of things that are really the whip to your step of a, of a push-off. Um, if your first rail or the big toe of your foot, um, if that doesn't have an active part in propelling you, well, you're taking out key accelerators, if you get what I mean. And so you're not getting that plantar flexion and toe-off that you really would like to have. Um, people who run slow and steady on big cushion shoes, well, obviously they feel good because it's cushioned and they feel like they're just standing on a bunch of, uh, on a cloud. And I'm not going to say that that's a, a bad thing in time, but it ultimately takes away a proportion of the function of what you really want to be using. You want to be using your, you want to have connectivity with the ground. Your heel wants to strike, your foot wants to spread. You want to push off your big toe for propulsion. If a shoe stops you doing that, well, then it's suboptimal. Right. You know, it's not to say that you can never wear those particular shoes, big ultra cushion shoes, you know, to stop, you know, to make you feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, but ultimately what it ends up doing is it masks an inefficiency somewhere else. Right. Like if you feel you need to have big, fantastically cushioned shoes to get through a 30, 40, 50K race, uh, it may be masking the fact that you just haven't got the strength through your hips or your, your style's a little bit out of whack or your hips aren't extending, these sorts of things. Um, cross-country running and, and sky running, you know, hill running is what a lot of people do in Hong Kong. And the key that, the reason why a lot of people use ultra cushion shoes over here is because they descend down steps a lot. And so I can completely understand why people would want to use them and why they feel so good because you're giving yourself a little bit more reduction in impact force as your gravity is taking you down a hill onto a concrete step. So, you know, it's horses for courses in a lot of respects. But if you're if you're flat running and you're sort of you've got an undulating track, there should be no reason why you would need some massively over cushioned shoe. Um, if you're looking for maximum feedback, you won't find a track runner that runs in anything, you know, more elevated than a rubber band stuck to their foot. You know, they're just going to want the maximum amount of feedback. You know, they want to feel their big toe push off. And so it is a bit horses for courses, but yeah, that's it. when it comes to shoes. Yeah. You, you don't want to be unilateral in your, in your approach. You want your foot to be able to adapt to pretty much anything. You want the you know, the mid tarsal joint or the mid component of your foot to be flexible 
and you want that to be able to turn and move and spread your entire foot. And so the toe box of a shoe sometimes is pretty good. Um, if you're running for you know a long time and your foot's swelling, you want to make sure that the toe box sort of gives you a bit of room to spread. Um, but otherwise, yeah, get your get your shoe to do as little for you as possible. I've got my zero drop shoes and uh, and my new a couple of things that I'm working on with running, but I'm working into it slow. So I think that's, that's good advice. Um, speaking of that, I want to be mindful of your time with just a couple more questions, Dave. Uh, so I'm coming back from an injury. I'm, I'm trying to do the right things. I'm working on the cues that you suggested, making some progress with cadence. It's very hilly here. For those that don't live in Hong Kong, you can go out your door and be climbing a pretty big hill real fast. <clears throat> and, uh, and I've tried several times probably not with the right form, mind you, but I've, I've re-injured myself a few times and I know I'm not, I don't think I'm doing myself any favors by trying to ascend and descend these hills. So I'm just trying to keep it flat and even going on a track. So it's sort of soft and flat. Would you recommend trying to be in sort of a controlled environment like that whenever you're trying to come back from a, an injury and sort of changing your running form? You want to listen to your body really closely. And so you'll find that, um, the biggest problem most people have when they've got knee injuries is descending and people hate running down hills. That sounds really crazy to the non-runner out there, but running down hills is more painful than going up them because running down hills, you've got all of your weight plus gravity plus, you know, the angle of which you're running, adding greater force to uh, a landing. Now, when you're running down hills, the only things that's decelerating you are your quadriceps like you're not propelling yourself because you're ultimately got gravity doing the work for you. So imagine, you know, I'm quite a heavy runner. So imagine I've got 12, 13, 14, 15 kilometers an hour of 84, 85 kilograms landing on a single leg. Well, you know, trying to decelerate, well, your quads are just blowing up. And so running downhills, you want to be running shorter steps with lesser impact. Um, and understanding that running downhills is where you're going to do most of the damage to your knees because running uphills you're never going to go that fast to actually do a ton of damage to your knees unless you yeah and so and running uphills you want to say okay you've got multiple degrees of propulsion you've got you've got your glutes you've got your calves um, you've got your quads you've got a lot of things helping you propel up a hill but you've only got one thing helping you decelerate down a hill and that's your quads and that's where that patella tendon comes in and that's when when you run out of power in your quads uh, your knees start to dive in on impact and that's where you get that non-linear force through your medial and lateral ligaments of your knee. And so that's when the, you're sitting there going, okay, where's the path of least resistance here? What's strong when that weakens? What's next strongest? And you'll find that your knee doesn't track all that well whilst you're descending. And so most people hate running downhills here um, just because it hurts because um, you've got gravity. And, most of the, and a lot of the times you're on stairs. A lot of the times you're on concrete. The stairs are different widths. They're particularly... They're particularly big steps, so they're quite deep. Um, and you've got momentum taking you down them as well. So, yeah, when you, what you want to do is you want to find a way that you can bail on any run. So if you start to feel sore that you've got an exit somewhere. So don't go out on something that, you know, the loop's 30Ks and you're 5Ks in because you're just going to have to turn around and do the 5Ks back. When you're recovering from an injury or when, you, when you're doing it, give it two days. Um, like most people have had DOMS before when they've done a big weight session and it's like next day is not so bad, the day after is a disaster and you're really sore. You'll find that, you know, give it a couple of days, see how your body reacts to that that force. 
if it feels relatively okay and you're, you're non-medicating with painkillers and the pain goes away after two to three days, then you feel okay. Well, you're pretty much right. But if you're still feeling it like through a tendon or through a particular joint four days later, well, you know, especially if it's unilateral, not bilateral, well, then you're in trouble. And so that's when you want to just can't have someone diagnose it. It may be that treatment is a little bit of rest or maybe the treatment is some, you know, passive or mobility or exercises, whatever. You don't want to cost yourself a fortune getting a ton of unnecessary treatment. You just want an intelligent opinion on what's going on. And so, you know, be the females in everyone and find out what's wrong and then deal with it rather than be the male in everyone and go, nah, it'll be fine. Um, so, yeah, listen to your body and just like give yourself a bit of give yourself a bit of elasticity don't let ego get in the way of it you know if you're running with someone and you know you're hurting pull up stumps you know otherwise you're just pushing the boat out that's good so yeah it sounds like it's a good transition to start in a controlled environment and then like you said wait a couple of days listen to your body if you're responding well after a few runs then maybe you can dabble with a little hill yeah give it a nudge i wanted to quickly just since we've got an expert here, I wanted to just talk about what you think the most common mistakes are that most amateur sort of struggling runners like me are making. And then I think you've probably already alluded to this, but we'll just hit it home to finish up here. What are a few cues that the, this population of struggling runners might be able to benefit from? Overloading too fast is obviously the biggest one for for beginner runners. Someone will go, yeah, that feels good. That feels good. They'll go five to six to eight to 10 to 15 Ks in the space of three weeks. And then they wonder why their knees are sore. Right? And they go, okay. Um, thinking that weight doesn't count, you know, um, it's, it's just, I'm not going to fat shame anyone because I'm a heavy runner myself, um, but weight counts. So, put that into context um just say you and i both run a marathon and i'm two kilos heavier than you are well that's 2.1 newton tons of force that's going through my knees that are not going through yours like two newton tons of force going through my knees for the sake of two kegs i'm going to probably eat a little bit healthier i'm probably going to make sure that i've got an okay power to weight ratio um i'm probably not going to have pies and chips and gravy you know in the weeks leading up to it you know a lot of my runners will cut a little bit just even if it's psychological they'll want to be half a kilo lighter going into a run than they normally are um because they just a they feel lighter but just um b it's just pure physics you know if you're lighter and you're just as strong well you're going to be faster and it's going to hurt less and so weight does count um don't overload too fast. Any sign of unilateral pain, you get it looked at. Bilateral pain is going to be relatively sensible and normal, um, and you'll recover from that. Have in the back of your mind that muscles repair quickly and tendons don't, and from that, you'll probably stop most of your mistakes. Make the least amount of mistakes as possible. Don't think that you need to optimize everything. Like a you don't need to be doing VO2 max tests. You don't need to be buying the latest Nike Air, Zooms, or whatever the hell they are. You know, you don't need to be buying, you know, you don't want to have all the gear and no idea. You want to, you know, make sure that you've got, you know, the basics covered and you don't get injured. And then you just progressively overload. Think of your, think of your phone book. So um, knowing that you wanted to also touch on um, kids' athletics development, like you mentioned this just prior to the podcast going online, um, I do a lot of junior coaching. I do a junior coaching of, you know, cricket and Australian rules football. Um, we're talking at the moment with a really high level 
organization in 26 coaching who look after a lot of fantastic runners and and triathletes in hong kong and hong kong is a place where you do have um, a bit of helicopter parenting you've got certainly like i've got three kids myself um you'll have real tiger parents in thinking that you know my kids excellent or my kids better than next or i want to provide my child with the most amazing amount of resources so that it's not my fault if they didn't succeed and that's the key a child will continue to succeed whether you like it whether you want them to or you don't they're going to have something inherently within them that says okay if you can provide a child with the confidence that they're okay to fail then they'll either take it by the bit and they'll run with it or they won't right you're not going to be able to turn around and and, and force a kid into anything it's just not going to happen um, the biggest problem that Hong Kong's got, in, in, or just generally as well, is that if you can make something a team sport, if you can make running a team sport, you'll keep participation levels up, which is going to be really exciting. If, as has been the case over the past 20 years, you'll have these kids who run like the wind, fantastic athletes, and they'll be wanting to represent their country at the Olympics, but then they'll go and play a team sport and never go back to running the 1500 because they want to hang out with their mates. They just want to play with their mates and be friends with their mates and these sorts of things and you know the olympics although it's great it's a phenomenal amount of sacrifice and so but it's not fun you know and so if i was to say anything the um it's not an oppressive nature but a certain degree of expectation that my child isn't doing as well as your child because you've provided them with more resources or you've given them a nudge the less that you can do with your kids in some respects the better you want them climbing trees. You want to, you want them taking skin off their knees. You know, stacking on their skateboard. Um, you want them having a degree of proprioceptive awareness, which is an unnatural sort of reaction to a stimulus. You want to sit there and have, if if they've tripped over, you want them to be able to either tuck and roll their shoulder, or you want them to be able to do whatever. But one thing kids don't do in Hong Kong well is fall over. So we do as a warm-up with regards to Australian rules football and cricket and these sorts of things, we tend to do a lot of rolling. We tend to do a lot of bear crawling. You know, you tend to want people to fall over in a controlled manner because they just don't know how to and they get injured falling over because they've never fallen over. You know, everything's been so protected and whatever else that, that, that the kids don't know how to fall over. Um, and so there's that component of trying to micromanage your kids athleticism and i know for a fact that you know my kids are okay they're somewhere in the middle somewhere you know i'm you know i've got enough knowledge that if i wanted to i could try and sharpen them up if i wanted but all i'm going to do is drive that child away from the sport that they like or make it too serious and so they don't enjoy it anymore um and so i have people telling me oh listen can you can i bring my child in for gait analysis well the key to that is that i can look at the way a kid runs and it'll change in about three weeks as they get stronger they grow their bones will change um uh, girls will go through puberty earlier and faster so they'll get stronger and fitter and faster and the boys will go through it later and they'll have testosterone messing with them um their their gait and their strength components will alter dramatically um we see a lot of junior netballers who's you know it's every time they jump in the air and land you feel like their knees are going to snap because they're like baby giraffes it's all this sort of stuff but you've just got to let them go you know there's no point in touching these kids unless there's something significantly dysfunctional um in a biomechanical facet other than saying listen if you can be strong through your hips that's probably not a bad thing you know if kids can be strong through their hips it'll tend to protect their knees their ankles are pretty mobile because they haven't rolled them a thousand times before they're 13 and so they should have decent ankles um, but if you can 
give their hips a decent strength, that'll create a huge amount of stability through their entire body. So if a parent says, oh, I want to do gait analysis on my kid, we'll say, well, no, because the output's going to be pointless and it'll mean nothing in about two months when your child's different. Um, and if you teach some, if you coach someone, it makes everything very unnatural. And so wait until they're grown up. And so, uh, yeah, you've just got to sit back and watch what happens. Um, give them some strength to make them robust. Make them know that if they fail, that's completely okay. Tell them not to be quiet if they're injured. Um, and from that, you want them to find a way in which you can make individual sports such as athletics and swimming and these sorts of things a team environment so that you can keep that particular diamond in the rough or that unpolished gem, um, maybe an Olympic athlete. Yeah, what sort of uh, sparked it for me, it's similar um, just with kids not being fully developed yet and trying to have them over-specialize in a particular sport. And uh, I was at a strength and conditioning conference once and the strength coach was saying, that this was at a high level D one school, elite athletes, sprinters that actually needed to sort of be retaught how to sprint because they had been sort of honed in one sport and taught, taught some things incorrectly. And you just sort of wonder what if that kid just spent some time in gymnastics and spent some time in some strength and conditioning and wasn't just focused on that individual sport, just sort of doing lots of different things. Like you said, climbing a tree and doing things more dynamically and just sort of being left alone to, to a blossom is, is really important. Any uh, last words, Dave, to, to close on? Uh, not particularly. First, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. It's been really enjoyable. And um, like, I've got a real passion for this and I'm sort of suitably nerdy about it all. And, and it's something that we, we want to feel like is an exclusive knowledge. You want to feel like you can debunk some myths you want to stop people from making as many mistakes as they are so that they can enjoy it. Hong Kong's a great place. There's greenery everywhere. The only thing that you really can do is trail run here because there's not enough flat places to flat run. You know, it's a dangerous place to get on your bike unless you get out at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. So there's certain natural inhibitors to Hong Kong and staying fit and these sorts of things. And so if you can find a way of helping people do whatever they can do whenever they can do it, you're going to do a uh, you're going to be a service to the community a bit. And so uh, it's, I'm not so altruistic to say that that's my key goal. I, I have great people and great projects that I like to see reach their potential. You know, is it going to be the person that's 25 kilos overweight, lose 30 kilos? Mate, that'd be amazing. Um, you know, get the mule to run a 41-minute, you know, 10 to a 33-minute 10. That's fantastic. You know, you just – and you feel the excitement of on people – um, all I can say is that, you know, podcasts like this will help build that community. Uh, the more interest we can have around making people not feel so uh, afraid or over-analytical about the way in which they keep themselves fit or get fit uh, it is good. You don't want people intimidated to think that I can't do that because I'm not good or I can't do that because I think I'm as not as athletic as I should be. You don't want someone to say, oh, I'm not going to go for a run with you because I'm slow. You just go, no, nah, come on, let's go for a run. You know? So um, if you can make things emotionally accessible as well as physically accessible, then I think that everyone's going to have a, a really good time of it and you can sort of build a really deep community here um, that has got a lot of reciprocity. You'll find a lot of love comes back. So, um, yeah, thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, David, so much for your time. I kept you for a long time and you, 
answered all the questions. Excellent. I hope everybody had their notebooks ready or goes back and listens again. There's a lot of good information. There is gold. So I really appreciate your time. And just uh, where can we send folks to just check out more about uh, Joint Dynamics? I think you guys have a, a website, correct? Yeah, Joint Dynamics, we're in two locations. We're in Central on the corner of Queens Road and, and Pottinger Street. We're also out in Taiku Place. Uh, we do a lot of our gate analysis and running analysis and the the more specificity out towards Quarry Bay. It's a bigger site. But um, if you jump on our website um, or you can contact me direct if you like, just david at jointdynamics.com.hk. I'd be happy to get back to you with regards to any questions you have. All right, Dave. Thanks again for your time. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you all very much for listening to the show today. Also, thank you to my special guest, David Jacquier, for joining the show and sharing his expertise. A few things you can do to help out Boost Health if you'd be so kind. Please check out the Patreon page and also subscribe, rate, and review the podcast in your podcast app. Leave a review on the Boost Health Facebook page and subscribe to the Boost Health TV YouTube channel. You can also follow My Boost Health on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And visit the Boost Health website at myboosthealth.com for links to everything along with more motivation and information. Until next time, this is Paul Sandberg for David Jacquier saying goodbye and find your balance.